Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I have one of my favorite authors and speakers on the story box for you guys today. His name is John Acuff. Now, John is a super funny, super vibrant, super authentic human being. We connected immediately the moment he came on my Zoom. He, the first question he said to me was, you've never been on a plane? And I said, yes, I've never been on a plane. That might shock some of you that are listening right now. And then we connected on the fact that I've got Back to the Future on my wall. So I instantly love John even more. And I think you guys are going to really get a lot out of this conversation. We had a lot of fun, but for those of you that don't know who John is, he is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including his most recent Wall Street Journal number one bestseller, Finish. Give yourself the gift of done. He's also an Inc. Magazine top 100 leadership speaker and has spoken to hundreds of thousands of people at conferences and companies around the world, including FedEx, Nissan, Microsoft, uh, Chick-fil-A, Nokia, and Comedy Central, just to name a few. His large and highly engaged social media following includes nearly 300,000 plus Twitter followers, more than 189,000 Facebook followers, more than 125,000 Instagram followers, and he's got a massive email list just uh, just to you know keep it going. <laughs> uh, but John has a unique sense of humor, honesty, and he brings a lot of hope to the conversations that you are uh, li- you listen to with him that speak. And I have no doubt that you'll uh, hear the same thing in this conversation. But John has a new book out called Soundtracks. It is available now, so go and get a copy. Highly encourage you to do that after you've listened to this conversation. But for those people that uh, don't know what this book is about, it's essentially to do with overthinking. Overthinking is not a personality trait, it's a fear that steals time and creativity. And John engaged his life by transforming his own overthinking. He wondered if people might benefit from what he discovered as well. He commissioned a research study to ask 10,000 people if they struggle with overthinking too. Now, I'm going to ask you guys the same question. How many of you 
actually struggle with negative overthinking. There is a difference, trust me when I say that, and you're about to hear more about it very, very soon. So please go and share this one around if you do get something from it. If you do love John's message, show some love as well by you know connecting with him, let him know what uh, you guys think of this conversation. Don't forget to subscribe before you go and what, let me know what you guys think of this one by leaving a five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcast. Love each and every one of you for all your support. So you guys know what time it is. It's time to turn on the soundtracks in our own mind and jump into the story box today and listen to the wisdom, the advice, and the story of none other than John Acuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Likewise, my friend. Um, we were just chatting before and you said you already got in my good books when you said you love Back to the Future and you know you said as you wish on... on uh, on the Prince's Bride, so I love it when people say that. <laughs> that oh, totally. well, that. You shouldn't trust somebody who doesn't like Back to the Future as a general life principle. That's a pretty easy one. If they go, oh, I just didn't get it. What? <laughs> like, do you hate magic and delightfulness? Like, I don't understand anybody. Like, if you don't like Back to the Future, something you need to go to counseling and figure out how to like hug your dad. It should be a requirement for life, I reckon. A hundred percent. I'm glad that you like it. <laughs> um, yeah. John, I'm super excited to have you here. I've wanted to speak to you for quite some time. I love your work. I love all your content. It's very inspiring, very helpful. Uh, your new book is going to go absolutely wild because of the subject matter, which we'll get into in just a moment. But I want to ask you one particular question. Uh, and I, I normally ask this question to all my, my guests anyway at the very start. But for you in particular, I'm very curious about your answer. And that is, what does success look like for you? Oh, success um, looks like for me that I'm the same person on stage that I am off stage, that I'm one person, that I'm not being multiple people because it's exhausting to be multiple people. So I'm, I'm who I am on the podcast is who I am off. Um, and then success for me um, no, is part, part of that is my kids know how much I love them um, and they leave the house like when they launch so full of love that when the world knocks them over, they don't spill. So mm. that, you know, that that's another form of success for me is my family. Um, I'm crazy about, and then, yeah, that I create work that I think is authentic to me. Um, and it, it fills me up and fills the world up versus emptying me, um, you know, and emptying the world. Have you ever struggled in your life, like growing up or even, at different points being authentic and what do you mean oh, 100%. It really means to be authentic yeah 100 percent. because i'm part of what makes me able to do my job so you said oh we spoke at microsoft comedy central part of what allows me to do my job is i'm able to read a room so i can you know i remember a couple of years ago one week the same week i spoke at a conference for djs so disc jockeys and it, like Rob Bass, who was this DJ from the 90s, read the song It Takes Two as a musical act. And then a couple of days later, I spoke to a group of chimney sweeps. So one group in Vegas, one group in Branson, Missouri, which Branson, Missouri is a small, you know, kind of quaint area of America. And I was able to do both those groups because I'm able to read the room and kind of adapt to the room. And that can be a strength, but it can also be a weakness because then I start doing it and kind of hiding, becoming who, you know, in a social situation you know, with friends becoming who I think they want me to be versus being who I am. And mm. so that I, that's where I can take what is a strength and turn it into a weakness. So yeah, that to me is I, there's definitely been times when I've gone, wait a second, 
that's not authentic to who I am. I'm playing a role in, in, you know, in this social situation. My wife called me out on it once. She said, you're an extrovert with strangers and an introvert with people, you know, and that was her way of saying on stage, you're all out there. But when you're around people, you know, you really can do some hiding that doesn't feel authentic. And she was right. Mm. Why do you think that that is though? Like, uh, I've always been curious about this is because of the, the, the sheer energy, like you've got to show up on a big stage for people and then sort of like you, you want to relax, uh, you sort of unwind a little bit with your own family. No, I mean, I think there's, there's certainly that I just, I just did a podcast. I had Greg McEwen on my podcast. He wrote mm. this book, Essentialism. That's super successful. And I asked him, how do you transition from being on stage to off stage? Cause that's one of those questions I'm always curious about. But mm. for me, I think it's more, people are afraid to be who they are because if you don't like that, then it hurts. If you don't like the character I've created, who cares? It's just a character. But when you share something that you genuinely care about with the world, whether that's who you are, a passion, a book, an idea, and then people don't like it, it feels like, wow, they don't like me. And so I think that's where people put layers and they pretend to be somebody else on Instagram and social media. I mean, like social media adds to that with comparison and performance. And, and so I think that's the thing though, is that people tend to put layers or masks or whatever phrase you want to use on themselves because they're afraid if I share the real me and you don't like that, it hurts differently than if I share a fake me and you don't like the fake me, who cares? It was a fake me anyway. Mm, it becomes personal. And I think I've struggled with that over the, over the years as well. Um, it's a very, well, think about it this way. Like, say you do a story box episode and it crushes, mm. like, and it's a certain topic and like, it just crushes. And it was on like, I don't know, it was on animals and you did an animal episode. There's going to be a temptation for you to go, wow, like that animal episode crush. I should do like a couple more of those. And then mm. you look up and six months down the road, you're chasing the success of that. And you've taken steps away from why you got into it in the first place. Like you're no longer Jay, you're Jay, the animal guy. And you go, wait a second. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to grow it in an authentic way that reflects who I am, reflects what I do, celebrates, you know, the people that I get to talk to, but also doesn't go. Cause I did one really good episode about snakes. Every episode has to be about snakes. You know, like that's the temptation. It's kind of like you're being typecast in a way to one particular subject matter. And no one wants that. <laughs> it gets boring. Well, I just, I, I remember Matthew McGonaghy said he had to take kind of a break from rom-com movies to relaunch who he wanted to be. So like the, he couldn't go right from rom-com to true detective. He had to say, it's kind of, think about it like ginger. Um, when you eat sushi, the ginger is there to cleanse your palate before the next thing. And so he had to go, okay, like I'm going to transition and it, it's going to take bravery because the easy path for him was to do a thousand movies where he's like, I'm the, I'm a, it's a rom-com. I'm going to fall in love at the end. And he said, no, I, I want to go to different levels. I want to go to different depths. That takes bravery. Have you ever had to take a break and sort of detach yourself to get more ideas? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think what's interesting about how the world works. So I just came out with this book, Soundtracks. It came out mm. like two weeks ago and people are already going, tell us about what new book are you working on? What new book, what new book? And so for me, we're such a fast culture that way. We're always, what's the next, what's the next, what's the next? And mm. so I have um, a friend of mine named Al Andrews. And one day he said, hey, is it ever hard for you to have an idea and not share it instantly right away? And I said, yeah, of course. Like, you know, which platform, Twitter, fate? And he said, well, you're li living a keg party lifestyle, a beer lifestyle where you've got a big keg of beer and people are coming in getting content, content, content. And he said, 
you need some wine ideas. You need an idea, you put in a bottle and you put it on a shelf and you tell a handful of friends about it, but you let it develop, you let it soak, you let it create something good and then you share it. And that's what, for me, soundtracks feels like that. Like it's been four years between my books and usually like an author like me, they'll, they'll say like, hey, let's do a book every two years, but it's been four years and I feel like this is more of a wine idea. And so mm-hmm. that takes patience and it's not, doesn't come naturally to me, but the times when I'll sit with an idea and I'll talk with people about it and I'll test it and I'll research it, the end idea is so much better than if I just rushed it out. Do you think that's what makes a, a great author is the one that sort of sits on an idea and sort of lets, or is, is more patient over time? I think there's three things that that help an idea be really good. Um, one is a personal connection. So are you personally connected to the content? You can tell when somebody's not. You can tell when it's a topic to them, not a passion. So the first is passion. The second is, is there really a need in the marketplace? Have you been interacting with people? Like pe- real people have said, this would be helpful to me. The third is, is there a niche for you to fit into? Is it missing in the marketplace? So for me with soundtracks, I'm an overthinker. I've been an overthinker for years and I actually changed my life in a pretty significant way when I started choosing what I thought. And that changed my whole career. So I did that in 2008 and I thought, do other people need that though? So then the researcher I work with, this guy, Mike Peasley, he's a PhD. We asked 10,000 people, do you struggle with overthinking? 99.5% of people said yes. And that was before the pandemic. 2020 was catnip for overthinking. The third thing, I went into the marketplace and I said, are there already so many people doing this? And I realized there's a lot of great books on overthinking, but a lot of them say, stop it, stop it, stop it. And my opinion is, why would I ever turn off this amazing thinking machine? I'm really good at thinking. What if I just fed it with good thoughts, like Mm. thoughts that push me forward, not thoughts that push me back. And so I found I was able to communicate, Okay, I've got those three things. That's my Venn diagram. That's what makes to me a good book is when you've got those three things in place and you actually can create something that I think helps a lot of people. I want to get to your new book in just a moment. Uh, but I'm curious about this whole uh, whole topic of actually overthinking things. Where does that actually start? Is it inherent in each and every one of us or is it just a couple of people? No, I think it's, I think it's uh, uniquely human. Like I don't, you know, we've often, we've often talked about like a bird, like a bird builds one type of nest. That's it. They, that's the only type, like a bird doesn't build 10 different types, like where they go, I'm doing a condo. I'm doing like, this one's going to be made out of metal. Like this one's going to be a town. Like I want something on the water. I want to be able to see Sydney, like whatever, like they do like where I think overthinking is something uniquely human uh, that everybody's capable of. It's not a personality trait. It's not gender specific. Everybody has the potential. Um, and, and for me, one of the phrases I've been saying is we're doing it a lot more right now because everything is a thing. And mm. what I mean by that is like somebody went to shake my hand the other day and right before they did, I was like, should I refuse? Should I say no? Should I give them an elbow, elbow bump? Should I fist bump them? Should I shake it? But then put my hand in a vat of hand sanitizer as if to say, excuse me, I'm scrubbing off the deadly pandemic. You just tried to murder me and my grandparents with like, is this a handshaking room? Are other people doing it? What does it say about me politically? Do you know what I thought about two years ago when somebody shook my hand? Nothing. I shook their hand, but now every interaction has layers and layers and layers of extra thought. And so I think everybody does it to some degree. Why though? Is it, I'm 
we're gonna I'm gonna dive deeper into this. Okay, so like, I'm a, well, I'm a I mean, there's a couple thinker. reasons. One is like your brain is kind of a jerk. Like your brain <laughs> is kind of a jerk. It does a couple things that are really not helpful. One, um, it distorts memory. You know, your brain isn't accurately remembering things. There's been so many studies. I put a couple of them in in the book, but like one of them from the Challenger. When the Challenger explosion happened. They did a big, long study where they said, okay, where were you when it happened? And then years later, where were you when it happened? And people's memory changed 40%. They would read their own handwriting and go, Mm. I know I wrote that, but I was wrong. I must have been lying. So your memory lies. That's the first thing. The second thing is it confuses fake trauma with real trauma. Even in tests where you know this is fake trauma, your brain releases the same opioids it would release in physical trauma. So it has a hard time recognizing trauma. So a comment from somebody online, you go, hey, how come that star reacted to that nobody on Instagram who criticized them? Because it released real opioids. Like they didn't see like, you know, somebody famous sees a compliment, you know, an insult like, oh, you're fat. And you go, oh, how dare you call me fat? And you go, that dude is Mark Dragonheart seven. Why would you waste your time with that? Because it didn't matter. It released the, like they, their body process that is trauma. The third thing it does is co- uh, cognitive bias. You believe the things you already believe. So in a way your brain is built to go, okay, I'm going to overthink. I'm going to overthink. I'm going to overthink. And you get to choose and go, okay, if you're going to overthink things, I want them to be the things I choose, the things that help me, not just chaos, not just things that pop in on their own accord. I'm going to deliberately choose what I think. So it's okay to overthink good things rather than overthink bad things. 100%. We've got to sort of make that shift. And I'm curious, how can we make that shift if the negative seems to overwhelm a lot of people more than the positive? Well, it's like anything. It takes work. Fear comes free. Hope takes work. Uh Negativity will find you. Like it will a hundred percent find you. Everyone has had that experience where like they're in a grocery store and all of a sudden they remember something stupid they did. Like the other day, this is so dumb. Um, I ruined somebody's surprise party once, like their surprise birthday party. Um, This woman I worked with, Tara, she probably, I don't know if she'll hear this. Um, She sent an email out and was like, Hey, I'm throwing a birthday party for my husband. And she, she buried the lead. She should have said up front, surprise, don't tell. I didn't read the whole email. I skimmed it. I'm going to be honest with you. And I told her husband and I get to the party that night and I walk in the door with my wife and Tara goes whole party. She stops the whole party goes, this is John Acuff. This is the guy that ruined the surprise party. And I felt terrible. And dude, I remembered that the other day. That happened 18 years ago. Like, how is that helpful for my brain to be like, hey, tappity tap tap. Remember that surprise party you ruined 18 years ago? Thought you might want to relive that today in the grocery store. So negativity will find you. Positivity takes work. And so you're right. Like, even if we're prone to negativity, we can, you know, the good thing is because we're growing up in the age of neuroplasticity with your brain changing shape with your thoughts, we know it's possible to go, okay, I don't accept that as the norm. I get to create the new norm. I don't Mm. accept that this is what I'm going to think. I get to, and it takes work. It's not overnight, um, but it's crazy how we've all had a situation where just knowing a little bit of information changed how we saw everything. So mm-hmm. there, there might be soundtracks that take a while for you to replace totally. But there's also times where like, if say you have a neighbor who's just a jerk and you find out that his wife has cancer and mm-hmm. he's going through the worst season of his life, it changes your whole 
opinion of his behavior. So there's times when we can learn like a sentence or two, and it changes our perspective of what's possible, of who we are, of how the world works. And so, yeah, it does, it does take work, but there's also times where you go, I had a bit of a eureka moment and it changed how I saw this thing. Was there anything that sort of surprised you during your research or during the writing of his book? Um, one, I was surprised how everybody does it. Um, whenever mm. I have a book idea, I go, maybe it's just me. Like, may, let me test this. I want to test it first and go, I never want to read. A, I never want to write a book that's only helpful to me. That'll sell one copy. That doesn't help anybody. Like where I should just put it in my own mailbox. That's not helpful. <laughs> so I was surprised how many people overthought. Um, and I was surprised um, how many of my own thoughts ended with you idiot. Like when I mm. went through the process of learning overthinking, how many of my own thoughts were not encouraging to me um, and how I would say another surprise for me was how much of my own performance was tied to stress and chaos and crisis. Um, and, and I was surprised how many other high achieving people that I talked to, if you really pulled the thread on what was driving them, it wasn't joy. Like it wasn't, and they couldn't celebrate and enjoy the things they were achieving because they were on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And they were, and even now you'll read some motivational books and you go, that person's running from trauma and they've turned it into a system. Like there's not joy coming off of that. There's, I got to stay one step ahead of the hurt. And so for me, it was a really personal book to go, oh, wow, I'm learning things about how I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the other surprise was just learning that there's some simple things you can do. I think the worst thing you can do if you're an overthinker is read an 800, 800 page book about overthinking. That's like throwing a bucket of water on somebody who's drowning. Like, and so being able to test and figure out some simple things people could do was really surprising. So what are you most proud of now of your book? Um, I'm most proud of, uh, that it's been light and easy. So four years ago, my wife said, Hey, um, you're a jerk for the two years when you write a book and you're a jerk for the two years when you sell a book. And that's not, that doesn't work for me. She said, I'd rather you be a happy plumber than a miserable writer. So we got to figure something else out. And she was right. And so what happened was um, maybe 12 years ago, um, I had a small ad agency and it just failed. And we failed this one client and I had to save the day. I had to really save the day. And it was the first time I realized I can function in a crisis. Um, and so then it went to like, it mutated into, I function best in a crisis. And then it changed into, I need a crisis to function. And you see leaders like that leaders who are good at leading through fires. If there's not a fire, they feel worthless and leaders don't like feeling worthless. So they start a fire and that's where I was. So in order to write a book, I had to stir up all this chaos, all this crisis, all this stress. And I was just miserable to be around. So I decided at the beginning of the process, writing this book is going to be light and easy. I'm going to make that the soundtrack of the book and I'm going to lean into that. And so I think it's the best book I've ever written, but it's the one that also had the most peace. Mm. Um, and, and I feel like this is a book that I, I received that didn't force it. And that feels different. So I'm proud of that. And I'm proud that in the marketing, it's been the same way. Like I've been, I've worked really hard. I've done, you know, 50, 60 podcasts. We did a free challenge that nearly 10,000 people did. Like we've done all these things um, in the marketplace, but I don't feel frantic and manic about them. I feel like, okay, I'm stewarding this idea and it's, it's light and easy. And mm. you can have high performance and high peace at the same time. Do you feel like you missed anything while writing the book? Like, did you put everything all out into the book? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think you always... 
you always learn stories on the back half. So like, that's, what's really fun. But what happened with this book, where my writing process has changed is that I used to have an idea and I'd work on it, work on it. And I turn it into a book. Now, when I have an idea, I work on it, work on it, work on it. Then I partner with the researcher and then we test it with people. So now like, I don't wait to get the stories until after the books come out. Now I take this idea and I go, Hey, 10,000 people, will you try it? And we have, we do free challenges. And what's great about that is that like, that's one of the things I'm proud of with the book. We made a list. Cause I, I said to my assistant, I want to send a free copy to everybody whose story we used. And there were 35 people on the list. And so I'm proud that like, if you're a single mom, you're not trying to identify with my story. You know, Michelle, Michelle read the, read the material, tried the idea. Here's how she applied it. Okay. That's different than how I'd apply it. So I'm proud that there's 35 different entries into the conversation. So that's why I don't feel like I left something out because I tested it first. And I said, okay, here's what, you know, I learned story-wise. Like people said, okay, I did this thing with a rock or I did this thing here. And then, okay, we tested, you know, part of the book and got responses from 1400 people. So I can say statistically, this is what happened. And so that's where I don't, if I hadn't done those two things, I would have felt like, wow, I missed the good stories that'll come after, but I got to put this good stories in because of the process. Now, this is the story box. And I love asking people, especially great storytellers like yourself, John, uh, what do you believe makes a great story or why do you love stories so uh, much yeah. in the first place? Yeah. So one of the greatest things that you have to do with a story, the best stories leave room for me to tell the story to myself. The worst stories are overpacked. There's no room mm -hmm. for me. Um, you know, I, my background is advertising. And if you want to learn how to tell a story, advertising is a great foundation. And so if you look at a Porsche ad, like a Porsche ad or whatever, however you say it, it there's tons of white space. There's a money shot of the car. There's a single headline, two small paragraphs. Why do they do that? Because a Porsche isn't a car, a Porsche is a story. So mm. what they do is they leave space all around it because they know the, the, like the goal of a good storyteller is to start the story and allow somebody to finish it. Because I'm 45 years old. I have 45 years of memories and vocabulary you don't have access to. So if you start a story about the ocean and you give me enough room to go into it, I finish the story thinking about, when I was in the third grade, my dad was in seminary. We had no money, he painted houses on the side, and we'd sit on the roof in Ipswich, Massachusetts, on the North Shore. And three miles away, we could send this, see this thin little stripe of ocean. And that's the story I'll tell if you give me room. So I think a good story leaves room. It invites you in. It paints the picture, but it knows that you're the best storyteller for you. And mm -hmm. that's like good speaking is the same way. I'm a public speaker. I'll, get, I'll do a speech, and after somebody will come up to me and go, I really love that thing you said. And I'll go, which thing? And then they'll say something I didn't say, but they heard what they needed to hear and mm -hmm. they remixed it with their words. And that's where something is sticky. So that's what I think a good story does. And for your book soundtracks, I'm curious, like the title is, is fascinating to me. Like you wouldn't, I don't think a lot of people would equate overthinking with the term soundtrack. Mm -hmm. So why that title specifically? And what does it actually mean? Yeah, so a soundtrack is just a repetitive thought. Some people say a thought is like a leaf on the river or a car on the highway, a cloud in the sky. Um, but my term is soundtrack. And I, say, I use that because the soundtrack in a movie can change the entire scene. Let's say you open up. You're, you've got movie posters behind you. You're a Spielberg fan. Um, there's been study after study after study on the power of the Jaws soundtrack. 
on what that does. You can hear that and your body physically changes. And it's only two notes. But let's say you open up a scene and there's this house and there's kids frolicking and it's a white picket fence, but then they play something ominous, suddenly it changes. You start to look for a creepy clown in the sewer and you go, don't go in that house, it's too quiet. If they play a happy song, they play Vanessa Carlton's Thousand Miles, suddenly somebody is making their way downtown, it changes everything. And so that's what a soundtrack does. And we're always listening to these soundtracks inside. And a lot of times they're playing and we don't even know because we've been listening to them for years. And so that's why I chose that title um, because I really believe that if you change your soundtracks, it can change everything. Mm. I want to go back to the stories for a moment and ask you, you, you probably got a lot of stories in the book. I have no doubt. Is there a particular one that stands out to you the most that you can share? Yeah, the, the, the first chapter. So when I was doing the research, I asked people over and over, hey, you know, did you ever change your life by changing your mindset? I'm curious. Like I want there's so there's two stories that stand out. One um, was this woman, Colleen Berry, and she said, yeah, I, I did that. She said I was a documentary filmmaker and I lost my job during the dot com bust in like 2001. I lost my job and I had to take like three other jobs, deliver pizza, all these other jobs that were nothing related to her passion. And one of the jobs was she was a receptionist in a real estate office. And she realized there's no path forward. I have to make the path. I have to change my mindset, change my, change my thinking on this. And she did that. And she, she got a coffee machine and decided, I'm going to create a new story. When you come in this office, you're going to get the best customer service you've ever had. I'm going to create an oasis for people that come in. And she changed her mindset. And now she's the CEO. She's the CEO of the company. And she was the receptionist. And I love like, I couldn't wait to tell that story. I had her on my podcast. She was the first uh, like big interview I did was like, Colleen, you got to share your story. So that was one of my favorite stories. And then another one was um, this guy named Sal St. Germain in Hawaii. So I asked people, okay, did you ever think something was true that turned out not to be true? And when you knew that, it changed how you approach things. And he said, yeah, we, are, we had this big project and we all thought the mothership at our company, like the big, you know, the higher ups were holding us back. It's a very common thing to think, oh, these people are holding me back. If they'd only let us do what we want to do, we could do so much. And he said, we thought they were holding us back. And so I went and I asked my boss, hey, are they holding us back? And he said, no, we're all waiting for you to tell us what to do. You're the experts. And he said that knowing that information changed our mindset from victims into experts. And we saved $14 million on the project. So when somebody says to me, does overthinking save money? I like South St. Germain would say it saved $14 million. Like I say overthinking steals time, creativity, and productivity. And that's an example of, of that phrase. So I loved that story because it takes the problem with overthinking is like when you talk about mindset, it gets really holistic and kind of fuzzy. And I like tactical, practical things. I want to know, okay, what can I do with this on a Thursday? What will this do for me at my job? What will this do for me at my family? And Sal's story was a great example of that. In your life, John, so you probably heard many people's stories. You had a lot of connections in, in your life. Whose story throughout your life has made the greatest impact, whether emotionally, mentally, physically, even financially as well? Um, I mean... I would say my dad's story of, you know, how to communicate really changed how I communicate. He communicates with humor. I saw, uh, you know, he's a pastor. So I grew up watching him on stage. And so I think that, and he would take me to comedy clubs when I was 18 in high school. So like that set me on a path. Um, 
And then as far as the story that's had the greatest impact on me in the last 20 years is being married to my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, her story, her approach to life, she, she got her undergrad in photojournalism and her master's in construction management. And nobody does that. Like, it's so different. And she would, you know, she went into a male dominated industry and was like, nah, I'm going to crush this. And she did. And so being part of her story and learning from that, and then having somebody that loves me enough to tell me the truth. Like she said, during the editing of this book, I never forget. She walked in and was like, Hey, she just read a chapter. She goes, Hey, do you want feedback or compliments? And I was like, that's such a good question. Like that's such a good question. And so, yeah, being part of her story as her husband and as her partner, as we kind of build this family, build this company together, that's really changed me. So two questions coming from that. The first one is what do you love the most about your wife? And the the tie into that is what do you love the most about yourself? Oh, what do I love the most about my wife? Um, I, I think I love like not work ethic is not the right term, but her ability to figure it out. So like, here's a story. So we have this car, we have an SUV, Um, and she took it to the dealership to get fixed. And they were like, yeah, it's going to take like three weeks and it's going to cost $500. And she was like, do you have the part here? And they were like, yeah. And she, she bought the part. She, she fixed it herself in the parking lot and then left. And I was like, that's amazing. Like that is so baller. So she's a superhero that way. I love her ability to figure things out and the way she kind of approaches life. Like, nah, we can do that. We can do that. Um, I love that. For me, um, I love my sense of humor. Like there's mm-hmm. been times when I've undervalued it because the, the, the talent or ability you have the hardest time recognizing is your own. It's so much easier to recognize the gift in somebody else and undervalue your own because it comes natural to you. So mm-hmm. now the older I get, I'm in my 40s. I enjoy that. I enjoy laughing. I enjoy making people laugh. I enjoy, you know, uh, like, right, like, thinking about jokes and figuring out ways to use them in ways that I think are funny. So yeah, I would say, I would say my sense of humor, um, or my ability to connect disconnected things, the best Mm -hmm. quote on creativity. And this is a storytelling quote without a doubt. Dorothy Parker said, creativity is a wild mind and a disciplined eye. And the wildness is you fill, uh, you fill your, you know, your head with all these different things. So a movie poster, something that somebody said on a podcast, the way a menu was written, something a kid said, and then you have the discipline of your eye to connect them in a fresh way. And mm-hmm. I love, I collect ideas. I'm active on ideas. I consider my brain like a rock tumbler where you're putting things in and things are tumbling around and you go, what's, what's going to happen? Like, is this going to be connected to this? Like, Oh, cool. Like I hadn't thought about it that way. That's counterintuitive and fresh. And when pe- people aren't expecting to laugh when they read books like mine, like business books, self-help books. And I love that. I love that I can hit them with humor and they go, oh, that actually made it stick like that. I, my favorite thing is I consider myself a handle maker. I put handles on ideas so you can take them with you. We have enough ideas in the world. Like we have way too many ideas. We don't have handles on them to bring them into our life. So I'm a handle maker. Mm. I can relate to the the brain aspect, like you're constantly churning ideas. Like my, I, I always yeah. say this, my brain is a whole new world entirely. And I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate that whole world. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'll tell people. People say, I feel ashamed because I didn't get my to-do list done. I didn't figure mm-hmm. it out. I don't like I ran out of time. And I always say, that's not that's not failure. That's success because your imagination will always be bigger than your calendar. 
Yeah. Your imagination will always be bigger than your, like my calendar doesn't stand a chance. Like my calendar is finite. Like my imagination isn't. So like, that's another soundtrack that I, I write that down. Like my imagination will always be bigger than my calendar. So on the days where I feel like, Oh, I didn't get it done or I got distracted. Yeah, of course I did. That's not failure. Mm-hmm. Like my imagination is always going to crush my calendar. hundred percent. And I think my soundtrack is, is on repeat constantly is saying to myself that, it's okay not to get something done today. Even my grandfather used to say to me, if I felt like I wasn't, you know, spending enough time on something, or I remember this one time real quick, where I, it, it changed, changed my life entirely. So he was trying to teach me how to build something in, in the workshop. And I said, Grandy, why can't we do this tomorrow? Like I wanted to go inside, watch Cartoon Network, drink pub squash, eat cookies, you know, the the fat life, hey, <laughs> um, back in back in those days. And I remember him just stopping and he put down his tools and he looks at me dead in the eyes and he said, Jay, don't put it off for tomorrow. What can be done today? He said, if you're going to be lazy and constantly put things off for, to, for tomorrow, nothing is ever going to get done. It's a, it's a form, of, form of laziness. But if you don't get something done, it's going to be okay because at least you you know what you need to do for tomorrow. And uh, I took that with me all throughout my high school. You know, I was never a procrastinator. I've never been good at it actually. Um, but if I do miss out on something today, then I know to what my granddy said is it's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah, I've got exactly. that It's going to be there for you. Head. Yeah. For me, I say my version of that is like, I've left myself some amazing things to work on tomorrow. Like mm. that, I just sent, that's a gift for tomorrow. Like versus I failed to finish today. Like we haven't lived in a done world in a hundred years. Like we, like you're not going to finish. So like you could say, I didn't get, I didn't tell enough people about the story. There's no end to social media. No CEO goes home at night and goes, yeah, we sold exactly the right amount of things today. Like you should, you can't hold yourself to that as the standard or you're just going to be miserable. hundred percent. It goes back to what we've been speaking about. Uh, on this on this episode, John, I want to be mindful of your time. So I've got two final questions for you, if you don't sure. mind. This one, uh, you mentioned that you grew up in in church. You know, your dad's a pastor. Yeah. So I, I'm taking it as you're a person of faith. Uh, I could be wrong there. Totally. You're totally. Great. Fantastic. So I am too. Um, this is a, a question I love asking to people of faith. When in your life, when you least expected God to show up that he's shown up in a big way that has challenged you? Oh, um, I would say, I mean, just recently I felt like I kind of saw the gospel in a new way. Um, mm. you know, yeah, I've been a Christian for years and years and years, but, um, <clears throat> I was thinking about it and I realized I had a broken soundtrack about the gospel. The broken soundtrack was the gospel is you've got so much work to do. You've got so much work to do. Oh, like you find like you got so much work to do. That's what I used to think the gospel is. Now I know that the gospel is really, you've got so many gifts to open. Like Mm. you've got so many gifts to open. And that, so for me, that, I mean, that was like last month. So I feel like I'm always learning new things about like the prodigal son story. Like Mm. God fixes that problem with a party. Like that never happens in any other part of life where you blow it. And the solution is the person throws you a party. So mm. that's something that I'm continually to learn about. I love that. I love that, the prodigal son story. Um, my last question for you this is my all-time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end. It's a hypothetical one. So I want you to sure. imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you 
of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. They but sent out an email, like one of those emails where it was like, hey, please send us a video by Tuesday. And everybody actually did. All the collective, you know? <laughs> yeah. But they've been able to get everything, John, and put it together in a film and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? I, I want it to um, be full of laughter and full of, you know, full of joy. I, I had the opportunity to open up for Dolly Parton um, at the Ryman, which is a big theater in Nashville. Um, and it was an amazing experience, but the best part of it by far was so it ends and I'm backstage and I walk off the stage steps into the crowd and I find my family. Like mm -hmm. the, don't get me wrong, like doing it with the, like being like, that was amazing with Dolly, but like, walking down the steps and seeing my family. And we all just had this collective, like what just happened? Like, and they got to be part of it and I was part of it. And we were all like, that's what I'd want it to be. I'd want it to be, you know, full of laughter, full of life, um, full of gratefulness for the friends I got to have. Mm, I love it. John, where can people find you, connect with you, buy a new book and, and learn more yeah. about you? Uh, books available everywhere. Um, but check out, yeah, check out my podcast. It's called all it takes is a goal. Um, I'm a goal nerd, obviously. And Colleen Berry, who I talked about it in this episode is in one of the episodes and her story is amazing. So yeah, check out my podcast. All it takes is a goal. I'd love to have somebody check it out and then give it a listen. John Acuff, thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast and sharing your story today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.